0: Welcome to the Joy Venture Podcast. I'm Jeremy Slegel, co-founder of Joy Venture, and host for this episode, where I'm speaking with Thad Devassi, Principal of Ratchet Strategy and Communication. works in that other side of branding the side focused on messages and stories that get conveyed through the power of words in a world where everyone has a bullhorn and anyone can be a publisher he challenges the people he works with to pull back their promotional veneer by asking what will you say and do that matters Thad never set out to be a business owner we'll talk about that as well as the writing life finding purpose and how someone who is risk averse can actually take big risks I learned some surprising things about Thad, and I'm sure you will too. But I'm not going to spoil the story. Instead, let's hear it from Thad Devasi. So, Thad, if that is your name. It is. We've been working together for how long now?
1: Three, four years maybe, okay. something like that. Yeah. yeah.
0: We were introduced by a mutual friend. Indeed, yes. Who I think, I I, I think everybody has one of these friends that says like, you got to know, you got to meet this guy. And you're kind of like, I don't know if I want to meet that guy. Because very few people really understand what you and I do.
1: Right, right. And, and usually when you have to meet that other guy, um, it never
0: it never works out. You, right? find, you find out that the, your friend actually had no idea what you actually That's do. That's right. And you meet them and you're like, he, my friend, you realize at that point, my friend has absolutely no idea what I do. So absolutely, when Jeff mentioned you, several times. I was like, okay, okay, fine. Um, and so, you know, Jeff knows us both very, very well. He does. I thought that was really, really cool. And, um,
1: we have very complimentary skills. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, a great thing when a designer and a strategist word guy, I, you know, I've always, I've always had a heart for design. I've just never been able to do it. And in my old line of work I got to work with a lot of designers because I just had a great appreciation for it I loved the creation aspect uh, bringing something to life and and then being able to put words and strategy with design I learned early on that that makes something really you know so much more vibrant right you know when you it's hard to get excited about my kind of work nobody jumps up and down for you know black words on a white piece of paper they just don't so when I can do that with somebody who's got, you know, great design skill, man, that's, that's where things really get exciting for me as a, as a writer, as a strategist. Yeah. But I've heard you in the past when you've described
0: yourself, you've talked about yourself as being someone who was a designer that never got into
1: design. (laughs) Yeah. The, um, the joke is the, I'm the art school kid that was never allowed to go to art school. Explain that to me because I've never you've said that before, but I've never really sure. My my dad back in the day he um, started out at Ohio State, um, dropped out, and then went to CCAD. At CCAD, he got a a degree in architecture. um, Back when they offered an architecture degree, and my dad's my dad is a great artist. His ability to hand draw is phenomenal I feel like I picked up a little bit of his artistic sensibilities but never the technical capabilities so I've always had a love for art the thing was my dad never you know this was that that classic um first interview type question it's like sure okay well so what have you done well I haven't done anything this is my first job interview it's like well come back to us when once you have some experience and so, where do you get architecture experience in in the sixties without actually doing architecture and so my dad at the time was working um, for the local newspaper and ended up just doing architecture stuff on the side and I think that experience for my father was one in which it was sort of unspoken but true that you know i want my I want my kids to be able to do what they want to do. And so I think his experience in going to art school and never being able to make that his career, he didn't want that for us. He never, you know, forbid it, but I think the encouragement was, you know, find something that's going to, and then again, this is that sort of baby boomer. It's a different, you know, time, a different mentality of, look, you go to work, you're loyal, you're going to work a job for 35, 40 years, make sure it's one that you want to do. And so that, I think that always sort of sat in the back of my mind. And so the art school was never something that really seemed as much as I loved it. It never seemed to be anything that was viable for me. So
0: did you do art in high school? Like... No,
1: no, I wish I did. You know, I, I did, I, you know, I piddled around. I did, um, you know, I was, I loved music. I was a huge music geek. Um, still am. My friends will uh, vouch for that. And my, my, maybe as they would say it, my music snobbery and the things that I like and and digging for the, the unique and the underground. I've always had a passion for people who create. And I was a writer. Um, I, I loved to write as a kid, um, make up stories. And, um, you know, sports was a big part of my life. So that really, you know, in, in that sort of high school, this formative years, you know, I just played ball all the time, I played soccer my whole life. And, and so, you know, with limited time, you you begin parceling out the things that you're going to devote time to and those that you're not. And so for me, it was sports and, and writing always sort of kind of sat there on the back burner on simmer and um, really didn't get, tur- the flame didn't get turned up again until college. And I was in, I remember vividly sitting in an English class, uh, you know, it was a 300 level class. I don't know. It wasn't intro- introductory but I remember the the he was either an assistant professor at the time, maybe even a TA. His name was Gaylord Brewer. He was uh, um, at Ohio State, um, where I was attending, and we were going through this absolute monstrosity of a book on 20th century American literature. And I'm no joke; it's a thousand and some pages. And I'm kind of going through the motions in college. I'm trying to figure out how do I become All I knew is I wanted to be a writer. I went to college and I had no clue of what a profession looked like. What do I want to do with my life? I had no clue. I ended up going into journalism for the sole fact that I wanted to learn how to be a better writer. I had, you know, this sort of ridiculous dream of writing the great American novel knowing darn well I would never write it. (laughs) But, you know, that dream was still there. Gaylord Brewer and his class, about midway through, hit on poetry and in particular the poet William Carlos Williams, it just, it, a, a switch flipped for me, and my I fell in love with poetry. That's not something I say often to very many people, because uh, when you tell people that you love poetry or you write poetry, it's one of the best ways to alienate and ostracize yourself. You know, it's not something that... I won't tell anybody. Thank you. Um, but, I, you know, I started writing, and the reason was at this time, and this is in the you know, uh, late 80s, early 90s. I I fell in love with these guys who weren't raised, weren't, and this is right about the time where creative writing programs are starting to flourish around the country. And you have essentially professional creative writers teaching students how to be creative writers. And uh, I went to Indiana University, took some classes from some amazing poets. They looked at my work and looked at me and thought, there's no way in hell this kid's ever going to be a poet. His stuff is too weird. It's too out there. It doesn't follow formula. Um, but they gave me great advice, and they said, you need to read guys like Charles Simic and Russell Edson and James Tate. And these guys at the time were writing prose poetry or what today may be called flash fiction or nanofiction. And I was writing in a style more like that, stuff that was falling through the cracks and... And I was writing, I would never put myself in the same class as those, those writers, they're amazing, and Simic's a Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, but the, I, I call them my absurdists, because they wrote really bizarre, strange, but funny stuff. Loved these guys. I, and I thought, man, if I could write like that, right? And this is where you you sort of learn as a writer to find your voice. I kept doing what I was doing. I went from writing... Really awful stuff to just mildly bad stuff, but along the way i I started to find my voice, and I started finding my own quirky sensibilities of the things that I loved in other writers and um, so yeah that was that was my foray into art, if you will. it sort of was this this passion that was on the side. I knew you know I was never going to be a lifetime poet, I was never going to be you know that that type of um, writer I didn't think. But, but the passion was always there. Yeah, so
0: it's sort of like I think this is where we have some similarities in that you know you kind of looked at writing and the kind of the fine art version of writing it would be poetry or writing the great American novel or something like that. this idea that you would write something and then put it out there and
1: hope that somebody would buy it, right? Yeah, this really so this is yeah, really interesting. I had made the decision after graduating from, um, from Ohio State uh, in journalism. I met my wife at Ohio State. She also has a journalism degree. We started doing a tour of potential grad schools, and um, I was set and ready to go. I was going to go get an MFA um, in creative writing, and uh, had the school picked out I was ready to go to, and made the decision that no I need and this goes back to my my father and the sort of practicality of um look you know get a get a steady job do do the responsible thing and I did I ended up you know working in a public relations firm for 16 years and decided to hone my writing in strategy practices in a much different way than the creative writing um approach and I don't bemoan it. In fact, I think that I I learned so much from the 16 years that I spent uh, in in agency life that's taught me so much about how to be a writer, working with other people who were better writers than me at the time that taught me a lot. All of that makes me a a better writer, a better professional. And and I, I couldn't see that at the time. There was a part of me that was sad that I was sort of giving up on a dream to pursue a career that I didn't know was going to be my career. But that said, there was something about the creative writing that I never lost. I kept doing, I kept writing. It's really hard. And I, I don't, this is probably an unfair statement to make, but back when I was writing, I, you know, creatively more regularly, I would send out to academic journals and see if they, you know, Hey, is there any interest here? Does anybody like what I'm doing? And I've got ever res- set of rejection slips that probably stacks as high as my waist of this isn't what we're looking for. This isn't what we're looking for. And I just took my lumps and just kept writing and kept I'm like, okay. And I believed for a while that it was sort of this incestuous uh, club that, okay, if you're an editor at X magazine or X journal, you're going to publish your friend that does Y journal. And without the credentials of a, of a creative, of a fine arts master somewhere, You're just not going to get in. And I believed that for a long time. And then, you know, you make a breakthrough and then you make two breakthroughs and three. And so my confidence, you know, inevitably started to grow that, hey, maybe there is a market for this weird, quirky, untraditional stuff. I just had to dig a lot harder to find the publications that actually embrace that type of. Uh, experimentation, if you will, and when was this? When were you doing this? You know, it's it's been a long, drawn out process. It started in the in the early to mid nineties. Yeah, I would you know if I'd get one publication credit a year, that would be I mean, it was like fantastic. Um, and, and these have long lead times. You know, you'd get accepted, and you wouldn't get you wouldn't end up in the publication for another year. And, and that's that's largely the way that publishing world worked it's it's different today with the the internet and online um e-zines etc the opportunities are tenfold what they were when i started and i'm still getting published today i just you know had a an acceptance a couple weeks ago that i completely forgot about and um had been out there sort of under review for you know a good year and I uh, said, yeah, but if this is still available, we'd love to take it. And those little moments are, are gratifying, and it sort of keeps, it kindles that flame of, of quirkiness that's in me that I love, of my own creativity, where there are days the work that I do sometimes can feel creatively stunted. So this is a passion that um, is still there for me, and, and I love to pursue when I have time, well, that's uh, it's great. one of those things I just don't have as much time for. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, it's kind of like um, just to like the visual side of that would be designers who sell their own work on the side. They yeah. might maybe they're they've figured out personal projects where they do you know posters or artwork that's a self expression type work mm-hmm. rather than client work where you know the big difference for you and I where it comes down to is you know when we're working for. Um, you know, a business, our job is to reflect them and their personality to the best of our abilities so that we don't come through at all in the other, uh, you know, at the end of the day, but that, but that our clients values and their personality is what really comes through. And sometimes as somebody who has the heart of a fine artist or the, or, you know, uh, a fine art or fine art writer that can be draining. And so, yeah, I think that's one of the things I tell a lot of people is it's important to do that side work it's important to do the stuff that brings you a lot of joy and it's interesting how many people that i know that have, that have actually launched businesses from that very thing yeah they're engineers and they but they just love you know to cook and after 45 years of being an engineer they get laid off and they decide this is my opportunity to to start that to make that product and, you know, whatever it happens to be. And, and they make a pivot, but yeah, that's, that's really cool. I actually didn't know that about, I didn't know you were still writing stuff. Yeah. Was,
1: you know, uh, I think one of the most, um, you, you know, will, will this type of writing be more prevalent in my life? I I don't know. Maybe, maybe someday. Um, I think the answer for me is not now, but, but one of the things that gives me, Uh, you know, you know me, I'm a realist. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a pessimist. I'm not overly optimistic. I sort of live in the grounded world of like, this is, this is what it is, right? And deal with it. But I had, a, I met a good friend um, many years older than me named Tim Sermont. And when I went to Indiana uh, to study under some really great uh, poets, Tim had worked on, uh, he's as quirky as they One of these guys that really gave me encouragement, um, a sort of like almost like a father figure type guy or a really older brother, if you will, who just loved my stuff. Meanwhile, I was pissing off a ton of people in class because they just didn't get my stuff. And I would unintentionally say something that was taken the wrong way or in my writing that offended someone and I felt horrible about it. But Tim would just kind of wink at me and go, This is great stuff. Keep it up. And I, I didn't realize how important that just that. You know, in a sea of people that don't get you, you know that one that does. How important that is. Tim was actually a guy who worked on Days of Our Lives. You know, as like a stand-in. You know, he didn't what? he didn't have like a <laughs> an ongoing role, to my knowledge. I he could correct me on that, uh, but I remember that aspect about him. And he was a headhunter for stockbrokers. And today, you wow. know, this is this is you know, fifteen fifteen years later, he's published three or four books of poetry now at the time he had he'd had a, maybe a chapbook um, he, he married his wife who's also a pretty famous poet and so I look at that and I, I I tell myself Thad there's no way you're gonna be that that type of writer and I see somebody like Tim who said yeah you can you really can if you if you go for it and wow. and he did, and um, he 's inspiring it 's really inspiring for me to you know whatever comes of that type of writing in my life, you know keep it on simmer and know that I can turn the heat up at, at some point if i want, yeah. but if not i 'm never going to let that flame go out. I mean to keep it on simmer it is sort of you know, at the soul of who I am, part of who I am. It's an outlet of writing very, very differently from how I write uh, Monday through Friday for clients. And um, that quirky expressionist outlet for me is important. Wow. Okay. So it seems
0: to me from talking with you about this and from hearing what you're talking about right now on the stuff that you're doing on the side, that may end up becoming more on the forefront someday. Who knows? You you get a lot of joy from your work?
1: I didn't. It's really funny. I, I I didn't get a lot of joy from my work and for a long time. And, you, you know, and I think this comes with maturity and age and this thing called wisdom that only comes with time. Um, I remember, you know, day, going back to college and like, well, what do you want to be? I could never answer that question other than writer, right? Okay. So now I'm writing. But is writing my joy, and for a long time it was not right. I worked, I worked in an agency. I got to do all kinds of interesting things, but I was still being my father's son. And, and, and you know, with that's not his fault. It was my fault. I was um, perhaps loyal to a fault. That I thought, hey, I have to do this job. I have to be responsible. I I have bills to pay. I have things to do Um, or things that I want to do and suck it up. You know, your job's not going to be your passion. It's okay. We all have to work. And the great thing about my job was I learned a lot of cool things. I got to do a lot of cool things. I got to work with some amazing people, but I wasn't in love with my work per se parts of my work. I love, but I wasn't in love with it on a regular basis. And so I had a, a sort of an event in my life where, um, it was time for me to go and, and leave those 16 years and start a new chapter of life. And I am, I am, I'm, I'm really open and honest about being the accidental entrepreneur. I never set out to, to hang out my own shingle, do my own thing, but the, the timing was right. And I did. And the whole point was again, to make ends meet for my family. And i think, okay, well, what is it about what I do that I love? And let's, All the things that I didn't love, I don't have to do anymore, and I gave myself permission to go out and say, "Look, if this works, see how long it will work, and if it doesn't work, go find another job." Right? And but what I really found out through that process is I found I, I I found rediscovered my joy for writing, and it didn't have to be this bizarro, fictitious stuff that just. Came out of my head or out of some crazy place that I actually, through all the years that I had worked at this previous, um, my previous place of employment, that I could take the best of what I learned and apply that and focus it and focus it in a way to help people tell their stories. You know, the who are you? What do you do? Why do you care? Why do you matter? Why should I care? That's when I became really passionate about my work.
0: Yeah. So you so you basically started out in, um, your career was in public relations Correct, yeah. for a while. And what what kind of pivot does it take to go from a public relations to more of what we would consider branding, storytelling?
1: Yeah. I think one means you, you got to be really bad at public relations. <laughs> and, and I was. And I, and I mean that in a sense, public relations is a lot of things and it means different things to different people. I think I was okay at the strategy side, at the thinking through the strategic elements, how to write the basics of what public relations need, needed to do, which for a lot of it was, you know, raising awareness and a lot of it was events-based. But there's another side of public relations that people get mixed up a lot of a lot of times being, oh, that's strictly media relations and dealing with the media and pitching the media, which I'm... I would admit I'm awful, awful at. And it's in part my introvert um, nature, not to be that sort of extroverted guy and go out and, you know, it's just another form of selling, if you will, that I'm just not, it's not my forte, but you know, I, I gravitated to the internal communication side of things, the, the brand side of things, the, the, the vision and the values of like, why does this matter? Why do we write these things and then not follow them? Or those that do, what do you do differently to make sure people feel appreciated um, from an internal perspective? And then from there, if, you, if you're doing the internal stuff right, then the external stuff will come a little bit easier. So I felt like through the, the client work that I got to do And some of the amazing mentors that I got to work and learn from I focused what it is that I was good at or at least what I was really interested in and just dug deeper in in that trench as opposed to trying to be all things to all people because I just I wouldn't be successful at that.
0: And you don't seem like the kind of person that would be good with writing spin either. Well, it's funny that
1: that word right there. And you're lucky I don't like clobber you with a, with a <laughs> microphone right now. It wouldn't be the first time. I, it's the, um, the, the, the word spin. I don't know how many meetings I've been in with clients that they're like, gosh, you know, we just need a better way to spin this. And I, you know, I don't try to be a jerk in a meeting by any means, but I will be really upfront with somebody that's like, look, we shouldn't even use that language because what we are about to do contains no spin at all. Right. And this is this right. is this is the bad. It's about helping your client's find their authenticity. Absolutely. But the problem is the idea of public relations. If if I'm being brought in under the auspices of PR of a PR right. program, then you know people interpret PR because the only time they really hear of it is when there's a scandal and then the PR person is out in front. And so it becomes synonymous, unfortunately to the general public and even to those who then hire PR people that, Hey, I need help spinning this story. And it's like, no, no, you don't. You need help telling this story and you have to be upfront and accurate. And, and if we've got to rip the bandaid off and it's going to hurt, then we better do that upfront right away. And so, so yeah, that's, I do help in that sort of storytelling. It's got to be authentic. It's got to be th- the true story. Or otherwise, I, I don't have a role to play. Yeah, yeah. Well,
0: and how many times are we going to have to see an Enron or a, a, you know, a corporation or an organization go through the stuff that they go through before they realize that if they had just told the truth up front and resolved the situation and been honest and authentic about the way they approached it, that they would have been in so much better shape from the beginning?
1: You know, Jeremy, it's one of the things that I, um, you know, I, I have a, you know, have a website. People want to know, well, what can you do? What do you do? And I list off the things that my, my partners and collaborators do. One of the things that I say over and over that I don't do is crisis communications in part because I want to be in the crisis mitigation business, not the crisis communication business, mm. and all that that 's all about timing it's all about being in, intentional right and there was probably a good uh, point in time in in my past life that I could say the majority of the work that I was doing we would be employed because other people kept stepping in it right you mm-hmm. know yeah. and, and you realize you need thoughtful communicators when our job is to undo something. Yeah, I I much rather be on the forefront and working with people who say, "Gosh, we don't know how to do this. Can you help us lay a foundation of how to do it right?" Yeah. That's where I want to be. Will I not help somebody who's in trouble? No, of course I will. But if I if if there's anything that I can do from an educational standpoint about what it is that that I do and the value that we bring is how can we get ahead of these things? How can we mitigate? Issues before they become problems, before they become a crisis. Well, and I think that part of it
0: is, and we both we both see this in our creative worlds. The, the biggest red flag for me is anytime I want to work with some, we want to work with somebody who is very clear that they don't want to be authentic about who they are. Right? You know, they're just kind of chasing what what other people are trying to do. They're doing it just because of the money. I mean, I remember, I don't know if this is a good example, but you know. About two summers ago here in my my neighborhood, I think we had six frozen yogurt places all open up uh, in the same summer, you know, and we're not talking about a, a huge area, six frozen yogurt places in the same summer and somewhere, somebody, you know, whether it was in the Wall Street Journal or it was in some kind of financial publication, got wind of the fact that these serve yourself frozen yog- yogurt places were going to be like the next big thing. And... I can probably promise you that none of them were all that passionate about frozen yogurt, but they all just kind of jumped on the bandwagon because it seemed like a sure thing. Somebody was convincing them. It was a sure thing. And by the end of the summer, all six were closed. But on the flip side in the same neighborhood, we have Jenny's ice creams. You know, there's, there's more ice cream places in our area than there are frozen yogurt places. But Jenny's got staying power, even though she's gone through some difficult times over the last couple of years for some reason she's got staying power and these six places come in as fly by night and they're gone. But I think part of it is because these people are coming in and they're trying to
1: be something that's not them. That's, um, hmm. I think that's the, what are we chasing? Right. And I think you can probably say the same thing. I didn't set out to be an entrepreneur because I wanted to be rich. Mm. That's not it. I want, I wanted to be able to get up every morning Provide for my family and maybe do some work that I really feel good and proud about right, at the end of the day. I can tell you when i when I started um, ratchet, I had no idea where it would go and it 's funny because the first few months of being out of my own, I started getting you know all of these other messages coming to me and I was putting myself out there in a way that i I'd never had to do before, right? In terms of business development, meeting people, you know, I'm, I'm sort of the wallflower guy. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not the, you know, press the flesh kind of networker, but I I was going to some, uh, some things that people had invited me to, and I was being drawn into other people's stories, right? And in particular, one that stood out were two guys that wanted to start an aftercare home for women who had been reclaimed, if you will, from human trafficking, and I just remember sitting in this room and my heart beating really, really hard. And I'm thinking, I gotta go over and talk to these guys. And my my conscious self said, Thad, don't go over and talk to those guys. You know, but I just I couldn't help myself. And all I knew is I didn't know anything about human trafficking. The irony was this this thread of human trafficking was was making its itself visible in my life. So I, I approached these guys and I said, I don't know what you wanna do but let me know how I can help and proceeded to have several conversations with these guys. And, you know, eventually we kind of came to the conclusion that they had a passion for something. They, they didn't need to build it from scratch because they would lose their passion. Their passion was the, the advocacy for it, not starting the organization and the bureaucracy that went with it. And that was a huge finding for them. Um, But exposure to these guys and this theme of human trafficking had sort of come back into my, come into my life um, in weird ways through film, through speakers, through these people that I'm meeting that I felt like something's going on here. And it led to an ongoing conversation my wife and I had about uh, adoption and eventually led us down a path to adopting our son from China um, through a special needs program. And, really, Jeremy, to be honest, the, the whole idea of writing and it becoming a passion again started there. When my wife and I went to China, I started a blog and you can't find it via search engine. It's one of those things you ask me, I'm happy to give it to you. And and it's a documentation of my story of mm-hmm. a lot of people asking, why are you doing this? What, what in the world? You've got You've got two kids. You've got a nice home. You've even got a white picket fence out behind your house. You've got the American dream. Why are you doing this? And I realized for me, I, I didn't have the American, I bought into the wrong American dream. And the American dream was, if I go through life and I accumulate these things and I check the box that you're a success. And I realized I wasn't miserable but I wasn't happy either. I, you know, I loved my family. I loved everything that. But there was this huge hole and void in me, and it was my purpose of who God had created me to be mm. was um, wasn't there. And I, you know, my my wife and I and, and my other two kids, we took a huge leap of faith. We brought our son home from China. I documented for my own sake, that I just didn't want to forget. I didn't want to forget these experiences. And, you know, we all do this, right? We go on a great vacation. We remember the two or three things. I wanted to remember what it smelled like, what it tasted like, what what my son's expressions Mm. when we first got a hold of him, right? And I wanted all of those memories documented. And and so I did it on a blog, and I fell in love with writing again. That's awesome. And and how important it was. It's like, you know, Maybe a writer is what i'm is what I was meant to be yeah. my whole life, and i I needed to find through various manifestations of writing, I needed to have that validation that yeah. indeed you are a writer,
0: yeah, so you know one of the things we talk about is this three phase process is um that we're supposed to discover joy, we're supposed to develop joy, and then we're supposed to spread our joy, but the takeaway at the end of that is, is we're never supposed to stop discovering. What I'm hearing you say is is that process, that leap of faith of bringing Solomon home and, and even entering into that was another opportunity to kind of discover and then get to a point where you are just willing to try something new. And, yeah. and that itself spun you
1: into another cycle again, right? Anybody who knows me um, for more than a half an hour knows that I hate to get on airplanes. I hate to fly. If you, if you give me a chance to drive, I'll take three days to get there, right? So the, the idea that when we started going down this path of adoption, I, I was thinking, okay, is it going to be well, it'll be domestic? Well, okay, if it's not domestic, it's going to be right there in, in uh, Latin America, right? Somewhere we can get to easily and quickly. When the plan for our family was to go to China, I about I couldn't believe it. There's just no way you're getting me on a plane to go that far. I would never any desire to go to the Far East. And, you know, to me, this is all part of a bigger plan that, I, you know, I fell in love, fell in love with China, right? And uh, I can't wait to get back and introduce my son to his home country. It's going to be a, a joyful day, uh, an experience uh, when that happens. But to your point, less than two years being home with Solomon you made an off the cuff comment to me. Said, "Hey, why don't you join me in, in Cambodia? Where I'm, I'm going this summer." And I, I laughed it off. There's like, <laughs> you're not getting me on a plane to go that far again. And it's just not not in the cards for me. And
0: I didn't let you. I let you laugh it off the first couple times. You and- did.
1: And then I, I, uh, with your at at the time twelve year old son and my twelve year old son, the, the the plan was to take our boys. And I thought, well, sure, I'll let my son. I'll let my son be the bearer of bad news because there's no, he's my homebody. There's no way this kid is getting on a plane and going, you know, he's never been out of the country. He's never He's been on a plane for like an hour, right? There's no way this is happening. And when I asked my son Holden, I said, well, what do you think? He says, dad, I think I want to do this. And in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, no. no you can't even be <laughs> You didn't know what you were in you for. You can't even be serious. And so then, so then, you know, all of my logical fears take in and take, kick in, right? I can't be away for three weeks. I can't do that. You know, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm the only one running my business. Not only am I not making income, um, I'm gone, you know, and we're going to spend all this money to go. There's just no logical way this can happen. And through your encouragement and my wife's left foot to my backside, she said, you're going, you're going. I went and I had my heart broken and there's just no other way to say it. You said something to me that said, I can't explain it to you. You're going to have to experience it, but this is the closest thing to heaven on earth, and I went, and we went. I knew your business partner John, you know, previously for a decade, didn't get involved in the organization until you came along and made the introduction. And I went. We got to spend time with these children in in Cambodia who or had been orphaned, but now are in a a home that your church congregation built. That your friend John has done this many times over in Cambodia and Thailand and India. And I'll never forget the feeling I had of unconditional love that just blew my socks off. I like, this is, I've just inherited a family of 22 kids. They loved me that much and it just broke my heart. And I thought, I went with the obligation of doing this for my son. I came home with the conviction that this is not an exercise and check the box. And so... You know the story from here. You know we, my wife and I, have a very short conversation on. We need to make. John had a very side. What he, I'm sure he thought at the time was a, an off the cuff comment about a piece of farmland that had banana trees on it that was available. I came home and I told my wife we can't let this be an exercise and check the box. We have to do. We have the means to do something, to bring more kids into this, into this safe space. And, and so we did, we managed to get together, you know, 20 of our closest friends and, and build a home for 22 more kids, which you got to go see this summer. I got to be there first. You got to be there. And what, what, what poetic justice that is that <laughs> you, you, you make the, uh, the introduction to me and, then you got to go see, be among the first to see them. And it's yeah. pro- without a doubt, without, you know, I, I, along, you know, marrying my wife, seeing my kids born and, and, You know, bringing Solomon into our lives—one of the greatest things that um, I I call Solomon and and my kids in Cambodia—and I do call them my kids because I just—they they they are family. They're the greatest decisions I never made Mm -hmm. because I would not have done them had it not been for the call in my life, the encouragement from you, from my wife. I I know myself well enough I wouldn't have done them. We Mm -hmm. need advocates behind us that put a hand in our back that believe in us
0: and push us forward see and and something we actually mentioned this earlier at lunch today but i'm not good at just going out and doing things on my own i remember being at that evening when you had you know your close friends with you and you asked me to come and share and i remember standing up there and like not knowing anybody there i i you know I, I talked with them beforehand and stuff like that, but just having an opportunity to talk about my experience in Cambodia, my experience with asia 's hope and my family had been, and just having an opportunity to share that with them, you spread your joy by not just writing a check yourself. you did do that, but but you invited other people into your joy and one of the things I love about the word spread when we talk about spreading your joy with joy venture. It's not it's people when think of people think about spreading they think about like being very external about what they do but m- I think most of the time spreading involves inviting other people into your work. I spread my joy to you not by telling you you should go to Cambodia sometime but by inviting you to come with me. In the same way you found some close friends and said I'm not going to ask you to just write a check and send it to me. I'm going to ask you to come I want you to hear this I want you to experience it and it's something that all of them are going to have the opportunity to actually go and be part of like go and hug these kids and play with them it's spreading joy is not as much about hanging posters and you know posting something on social media it's about inviting other people into something that you are passionate about and so I think that's where one of the things that that is really resonated with both of us and why we're actually sitting here today with microphones in our hands, sharing this with others is we've found things that have, that have brought great joy to ourselves, to our, our families, to our clients. We've spread them with others and we've seen what that does. Um, and in a world today where you hear, you turn on the radio and all you hear about is just like brutality and, um, bombs and injustice and all of that. It's like, man, being able to invite other people into your joy and spreading it in that way is like, it's so cool. And if, if everybody would do that. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine in the world that we would be in today?
1: You know, it's, um, this joy thing is, is, um, it's deep and it's real. And I I can say that because I think, I mean, like my heart's been broken for these kids, you know, my heart, was broken when I found out the full backstory of my son, right? It's, 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 it's painful, but there's so much joy and, and it's hard for me uh, on many occasions to talk about this stuff without getting emotionally, you know, choked up. It's really, it's really difficult because it's so real. It's so raw. But when I get to invite somebody into my joy and I, I owe it to Josh Garrels, the the musician, he, um, I, I, I've stolen that line from him. He has a, um, you can see it on YouTube. There's an introduction to the trailer, to a film, um, that a music film that he does. And he uses that line. When you invite people into your joy, something magical happens. And I've never lost hold of that. I heard that at the right time of my life, that, that message about five years ago. And, you know, you invited me into your joy of of Cambodia and Asia's hope, and and John invited
0: me into and his joy. E- exactly, and so, you see how this continues yeah. to go forward
1: and pace forward. And so, all I felt like I did was, I, you know, I invited twenty families and friends, you know, families, um, just to hear what I had to say, and the whole thing was, I, yes, we want to try and build this home for kids. Yes, this will do good but I want to show you and I want to invite you in. I want you to experience what I experienced. I want you to have this unconditional love like you've never felt before. And when you do, you will be transformed. It was something that I can't not talk about this now. It's such a part of who I am. You know, this is just how it works in my life. And I feel for me, how God's working in my life. He's like, look, I, I needed you to experience something like this and to be able to write about it and talk about it. So when it's time for you to be the strategist or the advisor to a client that has that same amount of passion or joy, and they want to invite other people into it, you can be that interpreter and translator and help tell that story because that's maybe not what they're good at. They're good at, you know, like John. John's good at the relationship building and the actual doing of making sure these kids are taken care of. What is it that I could bring? And as a writer and, and as you know, just an individual who's long wondered, what is my, what is my purpose? I, there, there's got to be a bigger purpose for me. And now, finally, you know, at this stage of life where I feel like I'm a little bit past halftime, I'm getting it. And I'm seeing how this passion that I that I had as a kid, this dream that I had, as this quirky writer, as this PR person, as this writer strategist, as this storyteller who is in love with kids that have the worst of the worst situations that no human should have to go through. If I can help tell that kind of story, then I can I can tell all kinds of stories yeah. now. But but you got to show up, and you got to listen, and you got to care. And I feel like I'm, I'm getting there, you know, and it's, it's a lifelong journey. And, and it's, a, it's a rediscovery, it, you know, it's that never stop discovering. I could have, it could have ended as a nice little bow on Solomon's story about adopting, but w- the blog was our adoption story. And then it was like, nope, I have to change the title. It's about our, uh, our, our, our care for orphans. It's, it's more than my son. It's going to be someone else's son now. It's going to be these children who are never going to get adopted, but they have a family and they're growing up in a family. That's really, those are the stories I get to affect now. And I get to play a tiny, tiny role in that. And so when I think to myself, you know, how do I find joy every day in the work that I do? It, it's, you know, kind of what you said um, earlier today as we were talking. It's like, there's joy isn't found in every project, but, but every project affords me to invest in the joy and and to me the joy is are these kids are these these causes and purposes that are so close to my heart and I'm just fortunate enough that I get to work with people um, who want to buy into what it is that I can do from a storytelling standpoint strategically for you to how, how to put a face to that how to put design to that that we can make a difference in a, in a company, in an organization, in a startup, and an entrepreneur who wants to do something that's going to change their world or the worlds of others. Those are the things that keep me going. So yeah, I, I feel very fortunate to do what I get to do. I'm taking the long road to being a writer. It's taken many twists and turns. It's not at all how I thought it would look. And I'm thankful for that because I think my best laid plans are A to B. And when you actually go a to s to q back to d and you've, you're you like I, where's this going it really is the journey and not the end destination that matters and i've learned so much more on the journey than had i known where the destination was going to be cool yeah that's a great way to wrap this up i think hey well thanks for uh allowing me to share
0: yeah this is awesome i'm looking forward to beyond this you know asking the same kind of questions and hearing more about other people who have had their own joy venture and just being able to share that with others. So I'm excited to do that.
1: Indeed. I think we're going to find that our stories, while they're unique to us, they're not really that unique. I think there's a lot of people that have got, there are great stories out there of people that we already know that are doing great things. We don't know their struggle. We don't know how they got from, from a to Z, you know, and it's not Z as in done, but it's like, how do they get there, right? And, yeah. and that's what we hope to we'll uncover. Yeah. Cool. Right. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Jeremy. Yep.
0: I'm thankful that Thad gave us a peek into his world and for showing us that by accepting the curveballs and plot twists in our story, the narrative we create can be more rewarding than we imagined. To learn more about how Thad leverages the power of words for clients, you can visit his website, ratchetstrategy.com. And if you want to access his creative and personal writing, drop him a line. I'm sure he'll share it with you. To hear more podcasts or read posts that are meant to nudge the dreamer to become a doer, visit us at joyventure.net. And if you're discovering and developing your joy, let us know. We'd love to hear about it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, remember, never stop discovering.